Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 21st, 2020. Right now it's Friday, November 20th, and I am here once again with our friend Truthvids to discuss the next several points in his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. And of course, if they were white, then they still are. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're finally on to uh, the Revelation, uh, arguably the uh, you know most important book of the Bible. Um, if you obviously if you understand it, then it becomes very clear that it's Eurocentric, that it's all about the history of Europe, you know, the decline of Rome, uh, the Reformation, you know, etc. All, all the events that transpire throughout our history, our European history. And, um, you know, lately it's kind of been deconstructed and, and now it's um, it's taught that it's we just don't know and that any event can just be, um, you know, compared to a random verse like um, the mark of the beast or oh, that's the credit card or that's the vaccine or that's this and that. And um, with all these modern teachings, it takes away the Eurocentricness and that it seems to apply to everybody because we're all under this beast system. But if you have the right understanding, that then it's clear that the Israelites were, you know, before the revelation and it continues with the Israelites, i.e. us, the Europeans. And then you understand that, well, we must be the Israelites, right? That That's the only way to understand it. Right, Bill? Right. I just wrote I just wrote a paragraph for this evening's program, for the Friday program, which is going to be a review of a paper by Clifton Emmerheiser. And basically I said that in that paragraph that if you start interpreting prophecy without any um, preconceived conclusions and setting your church doctrines aside, forget them, and look at the prophecy and read the prophecy and believe the prophet and see where these things could have been fulfilled in history as the prophet had described them, then your conclusions should come from the observation of the fulfillment of the prophecy. But if you start with a conclusion instead of ending with a conclusion, then you're making your own conclusion or somebody else made their own conclusion that you followed, and you're trying to force the interpretations of the prophecy into your conclusion, assuming that your conclusion is true. And you have to do that. In order to use that method, you have to assume that your conclusions are true and your conclusions are not always true. You have to let, if the prophecy is the word of God, you have to let the prophet lead you to the conclusion, period. And once you do that, from Daniel, from the Revelation, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, as we've outlined here these last several programs, that these last half dozen or so points, once you do that, once you allow the prophets to lead you to a conclusion based on their prophets, 
their prophecies, then you do come to a totally different conclusion than these mainstream churches. You do come to arrive at the only valid conclusion, which is that these ancient Israelites are indeed white people who are the ancestors of most of the Europeans today. Yes, that's the only valid conclusion when you follow the prophets and believe what they say. So I hope I expressed that correctly. I'm going to express it again tonight, speaking about the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 from a paper, based on a paper from Clifton. I don't know if you have an answer to that, but it basically verifies exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, revelation is essentially the the continuation of all the prophets, right? It's like um, not everything was revealed to the Israelites back then, but now Christ reveals everything in one go. It is kind of like he's taught our race bit by bit, and now he's revealing everything, and it shows everything that's going to happen continuing from the Israelites till the end times, right? Well, well, right, and I've expressed that in the past. Um... In, in relation to the revelation, and, and I plan on expressing that again today, that these that there are elements of the all of the prophets in the revelation of Christ that he is taking all of that to himself and, and explaining in in the the allegories of the revelation how those words of the prophets are going to be fulfilled because he said that he came to fulfill the words of the prophets not to deny them or to do away with them so we see a lot of the symbols in the old testament prophets are that they do appear again in the revelation many symbols that i'm not even going to be able to speak about today in a single podcast the um and and some which I will mention. So, not only did Christ sum up the prophets, he's the sum total of the prophets in the Revelation, but he is also the sum total of many of our most ancient myths, the most ancient myths found in the various branches of our race, are also claimed as Christian allegories in the Revelation and used as Christian allegories in the Revelation. For, for instance, and, and I will mention it here later, the term lake of fire and the term second death, we don't see them in the Old Testament, but they appear in the Revelation. Where else do they appear? They appear in the Egyptian Book of the Dead in relation to the dead that don't want to suffer a second death meaning a spiritual death, or that don't want to go to the lake of fire, which is everlasting destruction. We, we see um, the serpent in, in the early Greek myths, the serpent cast out of heaven. Apollo cast the serpent python out of heaven. And that was the beginning of, of the oracle at Delphi. That's the founding myth of the oracle at Delphi. And, and the, the priestesses of Apollo were called the Pythoness. After that python, it was thrown out of heaven. <laughs> so Apollo was said to have gotten the spirit of divination from the serpent. <laughs> so we see 
the serpent thrown out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12, that that same symbology was used. And, and the Bible had expressed that symbology in the Old Testament long before the ancient Greeks did. But the ancient Greeks shared the symbology. The oldest myths of our race, of the various branches of our race, are indeed related to the story of Christianity because Christianity is the truth from the beginning. That might be an oversimplification, but if you read the most ancient Greek myths, the sun god, Amon-Re or Amon-Ra, or however you want to pronounce that, crosses the sky each night and the serpent attacks him. The serpent in the sky, Draco, the dragon, attacks the sun god every night as he crosses the sky over into the netherworld. And Seti, or Seth, the son of the sun god, defends him against the serpent and overcomes the serpent every night. And, and that same allegory and symbology is evident in the gospel of Christ. That leads me to talk about um, something else, and, and that's the, the common ancient language, or, or the sort of common ancient language of both Greeks and Hebrews. And, and the very fact that scripture was first written in Hebrew with letters that are the same as those which are commonly called Phoenician, because the ancient Hebrew characters were the same exact alphabet as the, the alphabet which we call Phoenician. And then scripture was later written in Greek. That very fact proves that the Israelites were white. The Hebrew language is related to Aramaic, and the Syrians were certainly white, as the Greek historians attest. And of course, Greek is considered to be a strictly European or so-called Indo-European language. However, there are many Hebrew and Greek cognates, as there are with Hebrew and other Indo-European languages. Then there are predecessors to classical Greek found in the Mediterranean, represented in scripts, scripts that are different from the Greek alphabet, such as linear B, or what is called the Cypriot syllabary, which also shows that Greeks and Hebrews are more remotely related. Linear B is a script used to write what is called Mycenaean Greek, which predates classical Greek and the Greek alphabet derived from Phoenician by at least six or seven centuries. The oldest examples of Linear B are estimated to date to about 1450 BC. The oldest extant examples that have been discovered by archaeologists, right? They're esteemed to date to about 1450 BC, which is right around the same time as the Exodus. Another script called Linear A, which was evidently used to write a Minoan language on Crete, has never been deciphered and is esteemed to be the ancestor of both Linear B and the Cypriot syllabary, as it's called, which was a script found primarily on Cyprus, the island Cyprus, which is very close to Palestine in the Mediterranean. Examples of Linear B were discovered in the palace archives at Gnosis 
and Kidania or Sidania on Crete, and at Pylos, Thebes, and Mycenae in Greece, in the Peloponnesus. But Linear B seems to have no longer been used after the fall of the Mycenaean civilization in the 12th century BC. After that, there is no evidence of Greek writing until perhaps the 8th century BC. No evidence at all. There's a 350 to 400 year dark age in Greece where there was basically no literature. And um, that's the Dorian invasion, isn't it, where um, the, these Danites or Mycenaeans were uh, conquered by, well, the, the um, was it Manasseh? Sorry, sorry, my mind, the Dorians, yes, sorry. The war was my mind on the coast of Manasseh, and that's where the Dorians came from. The evidence is circumstantial early on, but it's proven in, in the exchanges of letters between Dorians and, and Judeans in the second century BC. So the connections are there and the assertion is historical that the Dorians came from Dor on the coast of Manasseh. The link is in Homer where he describes the entire Greek world as he believed it existed at the time of the fall of Troy and he mentioned Dorians only being on Crete. He never mentioned Dorians anywhere else in Anatolia or in Greece. So, so is um, Linear A and B a little bit closer to the Phoenician alphabet? It's like a transition between Hebrew to Greek, the like in-between bit that makes it even easier to clearly no. see that they're identical. No, they're not. And, and here I, I can oh, only offer my theory. They're more closer to the pictographs of the Egyptians. They're closer in, in, in substance and, and principle to the Egyptian pictographs than they are to the Hebrew characters. And of course, like pictographs, there were many more of them than the basic letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There were many more pictograph symbols, perhaps 240 or 250. So, and, and they were syllabary, but Linear A hasn't been deciphered. Linear B has, and, and it was actually deciphered by a self-taught amateur whose work has been upheld for the last 150 years, perhaps, 120 years, at least. So, this leads to my theory, is that Linear A and Linear B were developed by the Hebrews and other people who were coming into these islands in the Mediterranean, and when I say other people, I, I could mean um, Libyans, Egyptians, or anybody else that, that was traveling with Egyptian trade and commerce at the time. That might even include some Canaanites, right? Anyone traveling with Egyptian trade and commerce at the time, and, and in that ancient system of trade in the Mediterranean, which certainly did exist. I mean, Egypt did not exist in a vacuum. The Egyptians had a presence across the Mediterranean Sea, and, and that's highly establishable. The, the um, Philistines are another part, portion of that. 
Well, I believe that those scripts were developed in various places, were more closely related to the, those Egyptian hieroglyphs, and, and, and the Egyptians, of course, had more than one script. They had a common script, and they had a priestly script. And what we see in the hieroglyphics is primarily that the, the script used by the priests and the scribes, they had a common syllabary as well. I, I don't remember the name that it's called by, I'm sorry, but it does have a name. Well, well, I believe that linear A and linear B are more closely related to them, but that these people that were Hebrews, the Danans and, and the, the other tribes of Phoenicians, which were Hebrews, who had come out of Egypt and settled in diverse places in the Mediterranean, that is the script they developed. That's my theory. So it was developed independently from the Hebrews of the Exodus and the script which Moses had later used to write the, the laws found in, in the first books of, of the Bible. So, so in all the, um, if you just Google um, the stone tablets, they'll, have, they'll try and have it as though it was written in the modern kind of Jewish script, should I say. But it, was, it would have been written in the Phoenician alphabet, not the, uh, you know, quote-unquote modern Hebrew. Yes, Moses used what we ultimately recognize as the Phoenician alphabet. If you look at all of the archaeology in ancient Palestine, which has uncovered ancient Hebrew inscriptions, tablets, um, the bullae, which are, which are um, seal impressions, and the fragments of ceramics that were used to write messages on, things like that to scratch messages on that, that even children had used in, in order to practice writing their alphabet, all of these ancient findings were, had, had contained representations of an alphabet either absolutely identical to or very similar to, because there are always some minor differences in a letter here or there, to the alphabet that we call the Phoenician alphabet, which is basically a proto-Roman and proto-Greek alphabet. So we still use the Phoenician alphabet today, but we use the modernized version of it, which the Romans had actually cleaned up and developed, right? So it became the Latin alphabet. That, that is the, the Hebrew alphabet, that Phoenician alphabet. If you look at those oldest examples discovered by archaeologists of what Paleo-Hebrew or Ancient Hebrew really look like, it's the Phoenician letters. So, the Cypriot syllabary is believed to have been, like Linear B, the Cypriot syllabary is believed to also have been a derivative of Linear A. And it appears in Cyprus from around the 11th century BC, according to the findings of archaeologists. It was used to write a dialect of Greek called Arcado-Cypriot, which was spoken on Cyprus and in Arcadia, a district in the central Peloponnese. 
Another Cypriot dialect, called Etio-Cypriot, is apparently unrelated and believed to be older than Arcado-Cypriot, but it was written in the same script, the Cypriot syllabary. In the 4th century BC, it seems that the classical Greek alphabet replaced the Cypriot syllabary entirely. In the revised supplement of 1996, in the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English Lexicon, it is evident that many Greek words had cognates, or ancestors, in words originally written in the linear B or the Cypriot syllabary. That helps to elucidate the fact that there was a common language base for Mycenaean, Arcado-Cypriot, and Classical Greek, as well as Minoan Crete and other Phoenician settlements in the Mediterranean. Do you mean they took words from Linear B and then used the Phoenician spelling, essentially? Yes. But a lot of those words are also cognate with Hebrew words. My point in offering this is to show that the Greek and, and ancient Hebrew civilizations, or the Phoenician civilization, what were absolutely intertwined, that they were intertwined in many respects, and they had a common, um, originally they had a common culture base from which they grew. And we could trace those tribes of the Greeks, the Danans, the Dorians, we could trace them back to the Hebrews in Egypt and in Palestine. But the Athenians are another story. The Ionians are much more remotely related, and, and their origin is only shared with the Hebrews when we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, the descendants of Noah, and ancient Mesopotamia. However, the Athenians seem to have had no problem adopting the Phoenician alphabet because they were the first ones to produce literature in um, class, the classical Greek period based on that Phoenician alphabet. So that's just some background that I wanted to present, and I chose um, this particular presentation to do that. We should move on to... Proof number 40, as we've been numbering the 100 proofs, and that is that every portion of the revelation from beginning to end is about the 12 tribes, while at the same time, it is Eurocentric. So people should understand how it is Eurocentric, and people should understand that that therefore proves the location of the 12 tribes. Yeah, they didn't just disappear. They just became the Europeans, essentially. Absolutely. And, and they didn't become all the Europeans. Not all the Europeans had come from the 12 tribes. I mean, there were Japhethites, the, the people of Tartessus in Spain, which were the older inhabitants of Spain before the Celt-Iberians, and the, the people of um, Liguria in Italy, and, and Tuscany, or, or the Etruscans, right, and the Ligurians most likely came from the Etruscans, and then there were the Pelasgian Greeks and other Greeks that were in Italy before the migrations of the Israelites, and even before the settlements of the Dorians and the Athenians in Italy. 
So that there were other people in, in Southern Europe that were not of the Israelites, but they were of related Genesis chapter 10 tribes. They were of the same Adamic race and, and, and the same stock as the Israelites had come from. The nations that descended from the Israelites, however, came to dominate Europe. And, and today they probably make up the greatest um, portion of the genetic stock of most Europeans. Of course, there's been an Arabization of the an Arabization process of the southern coasts or, or portions thereof. The southern coast of France, the, the southern half of the Iberian Peninsula, the, the southern parts of Italy, the, the much of Greece and, and even into the Balkans had have in the last 1,200 years been mixed with Arab peoples and, and Turkic peoples. So that, that, that causes a lot of confusion in the concept of most people of what a European actually is. On to the Revelation. The fact that the Revelation borrows much of its language and symbols from the Old Testament is not a coincidence. The Revelation itself is a prophecy announcing how God would fulfill all of the promises to the 12 tribes of Israel, which were made in the books of Moses and the prophets. Yahshua Christ is the word of Yahweh God made flesh, and therefore he is the chief of all the prophets and the fountain as well as the outcome of all their words are in him. He was the inspiration of their words, and he will make sure their words are fulfilled. But the revelation also borrows from a source or sources, which, may, which many may consider unlikely although it should not at all be considered unlikely to identity Christians. Phrases such as lake of fire and second death, which do not appear in the Old Testament, do appear in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So Christ is evoking some of the oldest religious beliefs of the ancient Egyptians by his use of those terms. However, the concepts which the terms represent may be found in the Old Testament and in the Gospel accounts expressed in a different language. On the other hand, the use of terms such as the Alpha and the Omega, or references to Hades, or serpents thrown out of heaven, shows a continuity of culture with the Greeks. The so these... Um... Sorry. sorry, I was just going to say that the Egyptians must have understood that, um, you know, we're all judged and we all, um, you know, basically get reward for how we lived our life. You know, the original Adamic races must have had shared that same belief, right? Yes, they absolutely believe that. Now, the Greeks had lost um, scope of rewards in death. But in the Greek paradigm, the souls of the dead all went to Hades and stayed there forever. They existed in Hades and, and were seen as staying there forever. However, there were people 
that passed on that were perceived as not being in Hades, who instead went to the Isles of the Blessed. Now, the Greek myths seem to indicate that the Greeks believed that that was simply by fortune and, and not because they did anything particularly morally wonderful. So that their concept was a little different than the Hebrews. It, it was corrupted with their paganism. That's the way I look at that. But it was basically the, the basic beliefs in life after death and, and the continued existence of the spirit existed in all of the early Greek literature. Homer in, in the Odyssey. Homer had depicted Achilles, the deceased Achilles, the Achilles who died on the field at Troy, as appearing to Odysseus and, and conversing with Odysseus after he died. Then there was a whole chapter of the Odyssey devoted to Odysseus having visited Hades and the underworld of the dead and conversing with the spirits of people he knew that had passed. And then he returned from Hades. So Odysseus was also, in some Greek writers, touted as somebody who, who, who died twice because they imagined him to be dead when he went to Hades and then to live again when he came back from Hades. So that's a, a foreshadow of resurrection that came from the, the um, philosophical deductions of later Greek writers, right? But it's not really connected to the actual resurrection of Christ. Okay, it gets complicated, right? You, you can over-examine all of this stuff but it, and, and draw the wrong conclusions from some of it, but it gets complicated. Men have complicated it. So, the prophecy of Satan persecuting Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, that Joshua the high priest actually being the high priest at the time when the second temple was built in Jerusalem in 520 BC, that is a type and a prophecy of Christ who had that same experience with the Edomite Jews who persecuted him they being Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, and of course, Joshua the high priest and Joshua Christ share the same name. In Revelation chapter 12, the Edomite king Herod is depicted as a great red dragon, which sought to kill the Christ child, who is also named Joshua, or Yahshua, and whom Paul had called high priest over the house of God in Hebrews chapter 10. So there are definite correlations between Zechariah chapter 3 and the ministry of Christ. But Herod was only a representative of a greater entity. He being the dragon who tried to kill the Christ child, he was a representative of a greater entity which had seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. That language evokes Daniel chapter 7 in relation to the series of world empires which would rule over and persecute the children of Israel, the saints of the Most High, as Daniel calls them there. In Zechariah chapter 4, there are two olive trees and a candlestick fed with oil from two golden pipes. 
And we see a very similar description in Revelation chapter 11 of the two witnesses, which can only be Judah and Israel, but the explanation is too long to present it here. The two witnesses are those two olive trees. It is already presented in our commentaries on Revelation and on Zechariah. These and other similarities with the language of the prophets shows that there is a continuity between the prophets and the revelation of Christ beyond the meanings of the prophecies themselves, where the same language is even used to express them. In Revelation chapter 2, there is a prophecy of Christ who holds seven stars in his right hand, reminiscent of another prophecy in Amos. And he walks in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. These represent seven churches. To these seven churches, John was told to bear a message. And he was given a message for each church. He was given a different message for each church. These are called the seven churches which are in Asia, but they seem to be representative of aspects of all future churches or of different aspects of future Christians. Now, at that time, Asia, which is properly only the Roman province of the western portion of what is now Asia Minor, was occupied mainly by Greeks and Romans, and some people may have also descended from Phoenicians, Lydians, Galatians, and other related Genesis 10 tribes. All of these people were white, and they are nothing but white in all of the surviving ancient art and ancient literary descriptions. So, so the church is really just the, the people, right, who get together. So these seven churches are really just uh, people with different aspects, right, that we form. So, yes. so really we are these seven churches. It's us. Would that, would that be correct? Well, well, that would be correct by extension because we are of related tribes and races to those people that were in Anatolia. And we also accepted Christianity. So that would be right by extension. But the fact of the matter is that these seven churches, these are churches which Christ, of, with which Christ is concerned in the Revelation. The rest of the Revelation is written about things that are going to affect these churches. If Christianity were meant for anyone other than whites, one may think that Christ, being the most notable of all the prophets, may have had messages for churches in non-white lands, but he certainly did not. The ensuing chapters of the Revelation describe things that would happen that those seven churches would experience. So those things would not happen outside of the Roman world, but rather they would happen within the Roman world, and they did. Among the things which are prophesied are the persecutions of Christians and the reward for those who did not deny the name of Christ. In the ensuing centuries, 
Christians within the empire did indeed suffer persecution for being Christians and for not denying his name. They would even be sent to their deaths for that. Yeah, and if there's no warnings to the other nations, then he just doesn't care about them at all, right? Uh, yeah, get away from me. I never knew you, well, essentially, well, right. right? Right. The entire revelation, what is about to be written, is the fulfillment of these warnings and promises to these seven churches. This, this wasn't written because it sounds cool. This was written because it's an important message of Christ to his people revealing what was going to come upon them. In the messages to these seven churches, five of them are condemned for their attitudes or behaviors, the aspects which they bore. And two of them are never condemned. The reasons why are found not only in their actions, but in the meanings of their names. The meanings of the names of each of these churches are related to the attitudes and behaviors described in the warnings to the churches. And the two that um, aren't condemned, they're warned that Satan will come after them, right? And that's essentially um, any whites that care about other whites, the Jew will come after you, right? Absolutely. And try to uh, stop you. Absolutely. There's an important message in the messages to the churches, which certainly does bear fruit today and, and prove that Christianity is true. Even today, this proves that Christianity is true because this is exactly what has happened all throughout history. There were Christian churches all over Anatolia and the Mediterranean coast of Europe. But these seven were evidently chosen so that a message could be transmitted in the meanings of their names, as we see throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, that names had significance. So the two churches which were not criticized, and we're not going to get into all the meanings of every name. I do that in, in my Revelation commentary in my book, Christ Reich, and in the commentary, which is still available freely online. So you don't have to buy the book, right? The churches that were not criticized were Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both of these were also warned about the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie because they are not actually of Judah. In spite of the fact that unlike the other five churches, they were not criticized, they would still suffer tribulation at the hand of those Jews. So the church at Smyrna was warned, fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. What things was the church going to suffer? Well, that's the purpose of Revelation chapter 4 and on, these things that were going to come upon them. Fear none of these things, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil, the Jew, shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. And those ten days actually represent a much longer period of time. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. However, the church at Philadelphia received an encouragement 
Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world. And of course, that temptation is longer than an hour. It's described, it might only be an hour in the eyes of God, but it's described all throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Studying the name, Smyrna is ointment. That's what it means. It's, it, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word, which we know as myrrh. And we see the M-Y-R in the name Smyrna. But Smyrna is the Greek version, and, and, or perhaps the Lydian version. Smyrna was originally a Lydian city, and the Lydians were Shemites, but they were of a different branch of the Shemitic race than the Hebrews. So we don't know who really named Smyrna, the Lydians or, or the Athenians. But the Athenians, the Greeks came to inhabit it, and then the Macedonians and then the Romans, right? Smyrna is ointment. It's the name myrrh, the word myrrh with an S at the beginning of it. And, and it stands for the anointing. Here it stands for the anointing of Israel by God. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And here it stands for what Christ had commanded his disciples. Found in detail in John chapters 14 and 15. That if you, if you keep my commandments, I will love you, and, and I and the Father will dwell in you. But then he said, I give to you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And, and that's the whole theme of the epistle, the first epistle of John, is that if we love our brother, then by that and keep his commandments, we don't transgress against our brother. By that, we show our love for God. So that's, and that whole concept is encapsulated in this name, Philadelphia, and the people with that attitude, that behavior, they are not criticized by God, and they are kept from the temptations offered them by the devil who says he's, he's a Judean, and he isn't. So five churches were criticized. The sixth church, Smyrna, which means ointment, which stands for the anointing, is not criticized, but will still have tribulation. And the seventh church, Philadelphia, will be kept from harm entirely. Now, Smyrna and Philadelphia are not the last two churches of the prophecy, but for our purposes here, they're, they're the two that aren't criticized, so I called them sixth and seventh, because five churches were criticized. So the things which are in the chapters to follow are descriptions of what will come upon those seven churches. What happens in the wider world will affect those churches. So all of these descriptions describe what is about to come upon the Roman world with a few digressions. And these things are described in the chapters which follow in Revelation chapters 4 through 22. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 continue a description of Christ and his power over the world, as well as some of his intentions for his people. In Revelation chapter 4, there is a description of the throne of God and four beasts around the throne. The four beasts represented a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. 
These are the four components of which a cherub consists. The cherub, the Hebrew cherub, because there were Assyrian and Egyptian cherubs or sphinxes that were kind of dumbed down, but the Hebrew cherub had the wings of an eagle, the fore part of a lion, the hind part of a bull, and the head of a man. And, and there are plenty of Hebrew cherubs discovered by archaeologists that looked just like that. And they happen to be the four beasts of Revelation chapter 4, which represent the throne of God, which are set around the throne of God. They're the components of the cherub. So this is a direct link in symbology right back to Genesis chapter 3. Revelation chapters 6 through 9 describe the stages in Roman history that would become of the society of that time, which results in the fall of Rome and ultimately the Islamic invasions of Europe. Much of the prophecy in these revelations and in Revelation chapter 13 corresponds with Daniel's chapters 7 and 8. That language in Revelation chapter 9, speaking of the drying up of the Euphrates and the angels bound in the great river Euphrates, they're not necessarily good angels, when they were loosed, they were prepared for a short time to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000. And I heard the number of them. Well, that represents what happened when the Turks and the Mongols crossed the Euphrates. And even though the Arabs had tried before them, and, and they're also described in, in that chapter of the Revelation, in, in the earlier half of it, when the Euphrates River allegorically dried up and the Turks and the Mongols poured into, the Turks first and later the Mongols in waves, poured into the in, into Mesop, Mesopotamia and Anatolia, they destroyed the Byzantine Empire and, and basically eradicated forever any white civilization that was left in those areas. That's when a third part of the men were slain. Much of the prophecy in these chapters, Revelation 6 through 12 now, or Revelation 6 through 10 at least, and in Revelation chapter 13, corresponds with Daniel chapters 7 and 8. Then Revelation chapters 10 and 11 describe the events of the Reformation. So we see the outfolding of history progressing. I call it an outfolding because it's the folding of history that's announced ahead of time by Christ. This outfolding of history progressing in the Revelation is very clear once these things are understood, once these symbols are understood from the context of the Old Testament, and once the narrative of the prophecy is compared to ancient history and understood to revolve around the Roman world, that the Roman world is the world at this time, and that's the world that the scripture speaks of. So the next thing that happened after the Islamic invasions, the next significant thing 
is the Reformation in the history of our race. And the Revelation chapters 10 and 11 describe the events of the Reformation. The opening of the little book represents the, the printing of Bibles by which the common people had access to the Word of God that was a result of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church actively tried to stop that. So that also caused wars in Europe, and all of this happened in Europe and nowhere else. And no other race or country tried to print Bibles, right? I mean, they wouldn't even have Bibles if we hadn't brought it to them. Right. All of the Bibles were spread by people that that had come out of that European Re Reformation and thought that they should, that they got this Jesuit idea because the Jesuits were doing it first, that the other races should become Christian. So they tried to, the Jesuits forced it on other races. That They used the Spanish conquistadors to force all the squat monsters of Latin America to convert to Christianity or to, to uh, they never could be Christians, but to convert to Roman Catholicism. Let's put it that way. That's more accurate. And, and the Jesuits were also doing the same thing in Africa that in China, they were thrown out. I think it was in the 13th century, the Jesuits were kicked out of China because they were trying to set up banks at the same time they were trying to Christianize China. And, and that was what the Jesuits and, and the Roman Catholic missionaries were really about, were the extension of the power of, of the popes and the papacy. Had nothing to do with real Christianity. It had everything to do with the maintenance and extension of Roman Catholic power, which was taken away from Rome with the Reformation and, and which caused the Thirty Years' War and, and several other wars. In the midst of these chapters, in the midst of these prophecies, prophesying these things, the fall of Rome, the Islamic invasions, the Reformation, in the midst of these is Revelation chapter 7, which is an assurance to the children of Israel who are suffering all of these things as history progresses, but this process will eventually complete the promise seven times of punishment of Israel for her sins, which was warned by Moses at first in Leviticus and explained by Daniel in Daniel chapters two and seven. Then there is the time, there is the prophecy time of Jacob's trouble when Esau would gain dominion over Jacob. That is where we are now. That is where we have been for about 200 years. That prophecy is in Jeremiah. That also corresponds with the French Revolution, the emancipation of the Jews in Europe, which was Satan's emergence from the pit to trouble the nations, to trouble all the nations, to agitate all of the nations in the four corners of the world and bring them against the camp of the saints, as it's described in Revelation chapter 20. That is the ongoing invasion of modern Europe and, and America and every nation of Christendom. Satan is not gathering white nations against all other nations. Rather, Satan 
the international Jew, even boasts of policies that are causing the white nations to be flooded with non-whites and how white nations will soon no longer be white. Right. There's no mass immigration of um, Africans to China or, or China to South America. They don't care. It's only us, right? We're the only nations that uh, are flooded. There is not a single um, white nation that isn't being flooded. And um, even like outside our cities, they're moving towards that now, right? All the rural communities, they're finding ways and excuses to just pour non-whites wherever we go. Absolutely. All over America as well. They're, they're pushing the, the state housing agencies and state welfare agencies are pushing um, blacks and Hispanics from, from the inner cities who are dependent on those agencies. They're pushing them into suburban and rural areas for probably about 30 years now. Where when I was a young boy, if you wanted to get away from blacks and Hispanics, you only had to go five miles outside of the city. You didn't have to go far at all. And you would never see one back in the 60s and early 70s. Going back to Revelation chapter 7, there was confusion over two groups of people. The 144,000 who are sealed and the great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Yet all of these describe the children of Israel. Where it says all nations, it is not speaking of all the nations on the planet, all the people groups on the planet. Rather, it is relating to the nations of the promise to Abraham that his descendants would become many nations. And Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 had revealed that this was fulfilled in the nations of Europe. The promise to Abraham was fulfilled in the nations of Europe, those to whom he had brought the gospel of Christ. So in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7, of this later group, we read, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white, white in the blood of the Lamb. If one is not an Israelite, one has no opportunity, one has not even a need to wash one's robes in the blood of the Lamb, because only, Christ only died to cleanse the sins of the children of Israel. And the entire context of Scripture leaves other reason, other nations of, of other, race, other races, it leaves them no reason to have to have their sins cleansed because they were not under the law and sin is transgression of the law, as the apostles also explain. The churches twist all of this. They twist all of it and ignore most of the gospel, most of the epistles, and practically all of the Old Testament. The very expression of washing one's robes in the blood of the Lamb is an allusion to the protective power of the blood of the Lamb of Passover. So that's another symbol taken directly from the Old Testament because Christ is dealing with the same people of Israel. Then in Revelation chapter 12, there is another vision, and it goes back in time 
Now, a lot of people would say, oh, prophets only prophesy the future. And that's a lie. That's a blatant lie. Where in the word revelation do we see any implication that the revelation is only of what comes in the future? And why can't God explain the past so that we can better off understand what's going to come in the future? And if you read Isaiah chapter 44, I believe, there's a challenge to, um, to the people that worship idols, to the people that worship false gods, and the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah, show me the things that have been and the things that will be so that we may know that ye are gods. And that's, that, that is a challenge which is predicated in the fact that only God can show us the things that had been. Because we've lost almost all of our past history. And a lot of the history we have is merely propaganda. It's not even true. A lot of it. I mean, look at the Holocaust, right? It didn't even exist, but we build museums for it. That the things that have been and the things that will be. If our God, and we believe that Christ is the incarnation of our God, if he can't tell us the things that have been so that we can understand what is coming, then how is he God? Why can't he tell us the things that had been in the past? And, and there's many things in the Revelation and in prophecy that speak of the past. So it's a, it, it's a false argument that the vision in Revelation chapter 12 cannot describe something that happened in the past. This vision in Revelation chapter 12 goes back in time to describe the rebellion of the fallen angels, weaving a narrative which explains many of the events of history, such as the deportations and migrations of Israel into Europe, which is also in the past. The woman with the 12 stars represents the collective body of the children of Israel which as a nation was the bride of Yahweh God, was the wife of God, as she's, as Israel is called in the prophets, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, and in Hosea, and was divorced and put off out of the house of her God, which is the deportations, the captivities of, of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the ultimate migrations of Israel into Europe that is the woman fleeing into the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. So that was in the past to when Christ had spoken those words. So you can't tell me that the fall of the angels can't have been in the past because it certainly was. Yet I have seen boneheaded Christians offer that argument and they're wrong. The fall of the angels and this prophecy in general weaves a narrative which explains many of the events of history, such as the deportations and migrations of Israel into Europe, and the nature of those who had opposed Christ. Because that 
great dragon that seeks to kill the Christ child who is caught up into heaven, well, it's that Christ who's giving John this revelation. So that also happened in the past, just not so distant in the past as some of these other things. It also explains the reasons for the invasion of Europe by other races as soon as Europe was becoming settled into a new post-Roman society. The woman with the 12 stars represents the children of Israel being taken to their new homes in Europe. The period of time it took for them to return to God through Christianity because the woman is fed by the angels and comforted by the angels for a time, times, and half a time, which is 1260 years. And the warning that the dragon would then send a flood after her to persecute her. That flood was represented by the Arabs, the Moors, the Turks, and others who invaded Europe after the rise of Islam. That's the flood which is described, the invasions and the slaying of the men which are described in Revelation chapter 9 in different terms. The woman being nourished by the angels in the wilderness represents the children of Israel receiving the gospel of Christ over that same period of time. Yeah, it's astonishing how many how many um, Christians can't see that, that the woman with the 12 stars must be the children of Israel, right? Absolutely. That, that's that the, <laughs> the entire theme of that chapter. And that woman is the woman that bore the, bore the Christ child, who the great dragon would, would attempt to kill. And, and that great dragon, well, those fallen angels are, are described in that chapter as the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And associated with that old serpent, that old serpent must have been the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And therefore, these angels rebelled against God before Adam was created in Genesis chapter 3. To be there in the garden where they are described as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Represented by the serpent who seduces our race into sin. This, yeah, this all fits like a glove. And once you understand the identity of those people, this cannot be denied. You would have to go through many philosophical mental gymnastics to deny this interpretation. So the people of God, those people of the 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 12, overcome the accuser of our brethren, which represents the international Jew that, who is Satan and the serpent and the devil. They overcome him by the blood of the lamb. The only solution we have is in Christ. And the only understanding of any of this we have is in Christ. These things are all about our white society and its history. And that should be remarkably clear once that's explained to anyone who has any inkling of that history, any understanding at all of, of the development of Christian society is explained right here in Revelation chapter 12. Going on to Revelation chapter 13, it is another separate vision of two beasts which transcend the beasts of Daniel chapters 2 and 7. 
The beasts of Daniel are the great world empires up to and including the Roman. But then Daniel mentions a little horn which comes out of the beast. And that is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which comes from the head of the first beast that, that is slain. And that is the papacy, the institution of papal Rome. The reasons for all of these interpretations are presented and established in our Revelations commentary, and in the near future I hope to expand on that, including more thorough explanations, explanations of how the Revelation corresponds with chapters from Daniel and Zechariah. So the um, Germanic tribes slew the beast, the Rome, and then that they started to Christianize, and then Rome came back with a vengeance under the papacy yes. and managed to subjugate a lot of them. Yes, and that's prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, and I'll be discussing that to a great extent this evening in, in a presentation I decided to do this evening on Daniel chapter 7 based on one of Clifton's papers. So Revelation chapter 13 basically describes two beasts that are going to rule over the people of God in, in succession, one after another. And the second beast is a derivative of the first beast. And once you really understand the organization of the Roman Catholic Church, how it came to be, how it ruled Europe with the laws of Justinian that he compiled from the ancient Roman laws, then you'll see that, that the Catholic Church is in every way connected. It's a rebirth of the Roman Empire. And it was even called the Holy Roman Empire when it was primarily German. And it was the Germans that had destroyed the first Roman Empire. So it's irony. It, it is so ironic. It's incredible. But it's all prophesied in Daniel in chapters 2 and 7. You mean that they destroy it and then it ends up that they take the name of it, even though they well, destroyed well, them. Right, that they destroy it and then it ends up ruling over them in, in Daniel 7. So we have the first beast in Revelation chapter 13 is a series of world empires ending with the Roman. And the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, I mean, I'm sorry, is the, the papacy, which after the fall of Rome, the papacy, the popes had ruled over Europe politically as well as religiously and economically for over 1,200 years from the time of Justinian when he declared the Pope of Rome to have the primacy in the empire of, of all Christian bishops all the way to the time of Napoleon when Napoleon arrested the Pope and, and France became a non-Catholic state and the Jews were emancipated. And that was the coming of Satan out of the pit in Revelation chapter 20. All of these prophecies are intertwined, that they're not just um, funny or interesting stories that God wanted to tell. Or, or that these men made up and attributed to God, they're all intertwined. And, and the proof of their truth is in that the historical manifestations of their words. And you have to see the whole picture to understand 
exactly how it is true. You have to put away all of the false church doctrines that we're just Gentiles and, and the Jews are the people of God. If you're looking for the fulfillment of any of these prophecies in the Jews, forget it. You, you might as well join the circus with Hal Lindsey and, and all the other clowns. Tim LaHaye, whatever the hell his name is. Jenkins, LaHaye, the, the, the left behind turkeys. I can ramble for a while. Revelation chapter 14 is another assurance of the children of Israel who are suffering all of these things, but it is followed by further warnings of judgment to come upon the earth. Here it mentions Mystery Babylon for the first time. Therefore, to begin to understand Mystery Babylon, we must look for a political, religious, and economic system which has fostered world commerce as Mystery Babylon is clearly connected to world commerce where it is depicted as falling in Revelation chapter 18. So Revelation chapters 15 through 17 describe things which would happen in modern times. And when John returns to the wilderness to see the woman in Revelation chapter 17, he's taken to the wilderness to see a woman. It's the same woman that he saw in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, she was innocent. She was being nourished by angels. She was being fed the gospel of Christ. In Revelation chapter 17, she's a whore. She's no longer innocent. She's a whore and she has joined herself to the beast, which is precisely what we see looking at the children of Israel today, looking at white Europeans today. Think about medieval Europe and how innocent and how nationalistic and how Christian it was 800 years ago or 500 years ago. And then look at it today and you would say that they're all cucks. They're all whores. They've whored themselves out. They've destroyed their society in exchange for the benefit of these other races which is exactly what they've done. They're whores joined to beasts. Every white girl in Christian or formerly Christian society today who is walking around with a nigger on her hip or a Mexican on her hip or, or something else, some races you can't even figure out what the hell they are. And they are whores they are representative of that whore that has joined herself to the beast. And 90% of their fathers don't mind it. Collectively, we are that whore joined to the beast. The fall of Mystery Babylon is described in Revelation chapters 18 and 19, which we await as the world around us crumbles. But our race has an assurance that it shall ultimately prevail through Christ. So Revelation chapters 20 through 22, Revelation in its final two chapters, describe the ultimate victory of Christ and the destruction of all his enemies in the lake of fire. Finally, the last two chapters, 21 and 22, there is a description of the city of God and the kingdom of heaven. And on the gates of that city are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There will not be anyone else who gains admittance to that city. That's the revelation in a nutshell 
that's about the best that I could explain it in perhaps 45 minutes to an hour. Yes. Yeah, so, so ultimately, um, all of Revelation is about the children of Israel against the devil, the Jews. So the <laughs> European versus the Jews and the Jews flooding us with, um, you know, as Clifton called them, sewer people. That That's in a nutshell, that's what's happening all the way throughout, right? Right. And those the, those children of Israel, the beginning representation of them are those seven churches in Anatolia, which was entirely European at that time. I guarantee there wasn't one nigger in any of those seven churches or one chink or one squat monster or, or one whatever. Whatever kind of mud duck you want to pull out of any shithole nation in the world. And, and that's, that, that is caustic language, but it's direct and it's the truth. And I can't stress it enough. I can't say it in vulgar enough terms to make people realize the raw truth of that. The future is white. Watch the Jetsons. That's proof. I'm kidding, right? <laughs> but where's the little colored boy on the Jetsons? Where's the Mexican gardener? <laughs> All right. Should, should we go on to the um, next point or about the uh, four Gospels of Christ? Well, well, definitely we should talk about the four Gospels of Christ, but there's, there's nothing explicit in the Gospel of Christ that proves the Israelites were white. But all of these situations, all of the um, narratives within the Gospel show that they, they were from a white civilization, that they were very much like the surrounding white nations. The genealogy of Christ related, the genealogies of Christ related Christ directly to captives in Babylon. And all of these surviving mosaics and artwork from Babylon before the Arab conquests show nothing but white people there. There are no um, mosaics showing black and white people together anywhere. If there were blacks in Mesopotamia, where are they in the art of Mesopotamia? Now, in ancient art, in very ancient art, such as the Egyptian art and the black letter vases of, of the Athenians, the Attic black letter vases, Color was used for different purposes. Color was used, black, white men were drawn black and white women were drawn literally white. So color was used to describe sex and, and distinguish between the sexes. That has nothing to do with race. And it's the same thing in the most ancient Egyptian art, that color was used to depict differences between the sexes. The women were always very white and fair, and the men were always tanned or bronzed in ancient Egyptian art. That, that just described differences. That's how they distinguished the sexes in their art. Has nothing to do with race. They were all white. And, and there are even pictures where you can see Nubians that they're, they're having battles with these niggers, right? And they're, they're very dark and black. So, yes. So yes, and in that art, in that artwork, the men are depicted as, as white or perhaps sometimes as tanned. 
But that's to show a, a more important message than the difference between the sexes, right? That's showing a distinction between the races, between those two nations of people. So the genealogies in, in Luke and in Matthew, they, they link Christ directly to captives in, in Mesopotamia and Babylon. If we read the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, many people from Judah and Israel were taken off into Mesopotamia, but only 40,000 came back. So if, in fact, the Hebrews were any race other than white, why don't we find that race in Mesopotamia in the classical period or the Hellenistic period? Because all we find in the classical and Hellenistic periods are white people or at least people that are apparently white. The Magi. The Magi must have been from Parthia. The Magi, in all classical records, were traditionally a priesthood among the Medes, which, in the time of Christ, was a part of the Parthian Empire. The Medes, according to the Greeks, are the source of the term Aryan. Herodotus said in 450 BC that it is the Medes who were originally called Arians. This is a citation, speaking about borrowing things from the Old Testament. The Gospels all do it heavily. This is a citation of Micah chapter 5 in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. For thusly it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the leaders of Judah. For there shall come out of you a leader who shall shepherd my people Israel. Now, if most of Judah was off in Mesopotamia, and if Christ was dark brown or black, where are those blacks in Mesopotamia? All of Mesopotamia by then should be black. The apostle Peter was in Babylon when he wrote his first epistle, as he attests. Now, some people deny that that was literally true, but it certainly is literally true. Some people claim it's a code word for Rome. That's just conjecture. The same people would deny that Babylon is a code word for Rome in the Revelation, would claim it in Peter's epistle. They're hypocrites. Peter was in Babylon. He was the apostle to the circumcision where Paul was in Rome, he was the apostle to the uncircumcision. Peter may have gone to Rome, may have, because there's questions over that, gone to Rome after the death of Paul, after he wrote his first epistle. That's a possibility, but he was in Babylon when he wrote it. And none of the artwork, none of the surviving records show that there were any black people in Babylon at that time. The same for the Magi, who were priesthood among Aryans, among the Medes. And they had inside knowledge from prophecies they had that they maintained that the Christ child would be born. And that's why they went to Judea from the east, from Parthia, because that's where Magi were from. There's an article at Christogenia titled, Who Painted the Magi Black? And it surveys the art, the medieval art depictions of Magi. And they were all white. They were all white until perhaps the 15th century in Italy, 
when all of a sudden one of the Magi became a nigger. Who did that? The Italian, the Sicilian merchants did that. That's who did it. And they were kissing the asses of the Arabs and, and, and wanting to patronize the Arabs that they were doing trade with. That's what happened there. So ever since then, one of the Magi have, has been described as black, but it's not true. And before then, in Europe, all the surviving artwork of Magi portray three white men. The apostles were fishermen who were accustomed to owning and operating large boats, which could hold several men and many fish for long journeys. The ancient Israelites were regularly engaged in intercontinental shipping and trade from as early as the time of the first judges of Israel. But in sub-Saharan Africa, nothing has ever been found of ancient shipping outside of a few crude canoes which could barely hold one person. Even today on large African lakes, boats made by the natives are only crude, small canoes made from reeds. They don't build ships. They've never built ships. They've never gone anywhere on ships. Not even the Asians, for the most part, could build ships without white injections of white people into their societies. But that's another topic entirely. Let's look at some of the symbols that Christ uses to describe the children of Israel. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. Salt is white. Light is white. The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven hidden in flour. Leaven and flour are both white. The fields are white for harvest. The wheat and the tares are, are golden and red, or white and red, if the fields are white for the harvest. Who has kept the Ten Commandments ever since Christ came but white people? What culture even had an inkling of the Ten Commandments before the colonization period of white people brought them the commandments? The people in Sardis in Revelation chapter 2 who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The angel at the tomb of Christ in the gospel, whose countenance was white like lightning, and his raiment as white as snow, that angel must have been white to have a countenance like lightning. And what I'm getting at is that everything which is good and positive in scripture is white or golden or like wheat, or shining bright, perhaps and even uh, the sheep. Are. Even the sheep are white, right? Matthew chapter fifteen and Mark chapter seven. A woman was identified as a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician, and a Greek. The same woman, depending on Matthew's perspective or Mark's perspective. And that reveals a resemblance among sub-races, because the Canaanites were a sub-race of Adam. Even though they were mixed with fallen angels, they were still a sub-race of Adam. They still appeared to be white. The Edomites, Esau, having mingled himself with the Canaanites, the Edomites had more Canaanite blood in them than they had Adamic blood in them. But even they appeared to be white. The apostles couldn't tell them from the Israelites. Mark chapter 15, Simon the Cyrenian at Jerusalem for the Passover. 
Simon was from Cyrene, that is on the coast of Africa, next to Egypt, but it was a Greek settlement. It was a historic Greek settlement, which had um, been founded in the 7th century BC and populated by Greeks. The vocations mentioned in the New Testament, scribe, lawyer, judge, money changer, which is basically a banker, priest, publican, which is a tax collector, soldier, prison warden, physician, tanner, fisherman, carpenter, vine dresser, husbandman, potter, steward, tent maker, builder. These are all white vocations and, and a white society. When did the other races ever, before white intervention, identify themselves in these manners? In China, you may have aboriginal people on the plains of Mongolia, you might have aboriginal people who live by raising cattle or who or sheep or who live by fishing or who live in a rice paddy, but that was their means of subsistence. It was not really an occupation or a vocation. You may have had tribal Well, they always naturally become... I'm sorry. Sorry, I was going to say that they naturally become inclined to thieves and uh, witch doctors and fortune tellers and all that type of thing. They naturally head towards that direction always. Well, well right. It's it, it's a whole different that they have whole different even when they are sort of organized in, into cities or, or under chieftains, tribal chieftains, whatever, that they have a whole different outlook towards um, economics and subsistence than whites have had historically. This whole description of the way society is organized in the New Testament, where, has it, where was it ever repeated in Africa without white intervention, which has happened since the colonial period, since perhaps the 14th century? So the organization of society into government, religious officials, landlords, servants, merchants, and tradesmen, that's always been a feature of white society that the other races never duplicated on their own, not that we could see in history. The Chinese have some loose history, but it doesn't reflect that the anything near what the Romans had accomplished by, by the Hellenistic period or, or what the Greeks had accomplished by the time of the Hellenistic period. And it's arguable that that was... Yeah, and, and even in pagan Rome, you had all these roles, right? And even in other pagan societies, it was exactly the same. Absolutely. So, so it's the circumstances of, of the... New Testament, and also the Old, because they had the same general structure in the Old Testament. It, it was a, um, an agrarian society, which also had all of these other roles and, and had a vibrant economy based around this structure of society. So it's the way the society is organized is the same way it's organized in every other white nation of antiquity. And you're going to tell me these people weren't white, that they were black, when the blacks in Africa never organized a society in this manner.
what do we know of the history of pre-colonial Africa? I want to know what we know of the history of the tribes of pre-colonial Africa. Where is it written? Where was it recorded? Where did they have scribes and, and priests and, and other vocations which maintain, librarians, right, which maintained this history? It doesn't freaking exist anywhere. What would a Mandingos do it in 300 AD? I could tell you what, where the Goths were and what they were doing. I could tell you where the Romans were, of course, and the Greeks and, and, and 50 other tribes in Europe. What were the Hutus doing in, in the 6th century? <laughs> Not a damn clue. Yeah, there's been no progression. Like, if you took a snapshot every thousand years, and you, you know, and you came back, and then came back again a thousand years, they'd be exactly the same, wouldn't they? Right. the The entire circumstances of the New Testament, and not only the New but also the Old, proves beyond doubt that these people are organized along the same lines that all of the other white nations of, of Southern Europe, and and the Near East and the Middle East were organized, that they were a, a, a branch of the same race and society. It, it's incredible to think that you could separate the Hebrew Old Testament from ancient white society and, and think that it was different. When, it was ex when you actually read the Old Testament, it, it's the, the exact same organization that you see in the other white nations. That other races never had been able to achieve by themselves. Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, Christ foretells what shall happen to his disciples in the Roman persecutions. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. For a testimony against them, and the gospel must be first published among all nations. Where did a black apostle ever go to the rulers and kings of Europe and be persecuted for having the gospel of Christ? I didn't think you could answer that. I'm sorry. I'm not <laughs> picking on you. <laughs> never happened in history, right? It can't be answered, right? It never happened in history. Who published the gospel? Where was the gospel published? Even when Christianity was brought to Africa, the gospels, the books they used, were published by white people in Europe. Where have we ever opened up a Bible to read that, that it was printed in Zimbabwe? I mean, maybe now somebody's printing a Bible somewhere in Zimbabwe, but it's never happened before. If they're not publishing Bibles all along, if they're not publishing the gospel, then they're not the people of God. They never were. It's that simple. If it weren't for whites, there would be no Bible, ever. And to them, um, Christianity is very different. They always turn it in, and twist it into some kind of prosperity gospel or, you know, a way to get rich. Or that, That's all it is to them. That brings me to the gospel of Luke. Luke, according to the gospel... According to the accounts in scripture, he was a Greek by race. And he met Paul when he was a convert in Antioch, which is in far northern Syria. 
near, it's actually probably in modern Turkey, if it's not right over the Turkish border in Syria. It's been a while since I looked at it on a map, but it's right there at the border of Syria and Turkey. It was very close to where Paul was from, from Tarsus in Kalikia, which is in modern Turkey. So Luke was a Greek by race and a convert to Christianity. And he recorded, of course, the Gospel of Luke. And in, in the words of Mary, the mother of Christ, in Luke chapter 1, Luke wrote, he that Mary, Luke recorded that Mary had said, in part, he has holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Now, if Abraham was a nigger and this promise, which is in Christ, is to Abraham and to his seed forever, and if Luke thought that they were black, how could he possibly include himself in Christianity? How could he possibly think that he fit into this picture? But Luke must have thought that he fit into this picture in order to be able to honestly record those words. The only thing that that could mean is that Luke perceived that these Hebrews and these Israelites in Judea that he was part of that seed, that they were the same race as he was. So he and must have understood Greeks were his rights, essentially. Absolutely. And, and, and Luke is also responsible for recording the words of Paul in Acts chapter 26, that, that the hope for which Paul struggled was the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we sh well, we'll get to the book of Acts a little later on in this series of presentations. The words of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Luke repeated it. So he must have meant it, and he must have considered the impact. Where from verse 71, he said, he wrote in the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that we should be safe from our enemies and from the hand of all they that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that they would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Who were those enemies? And we'll see who those Israelites were. Because those enemies, the apostles all counted those Edomite Jews in Jerusalem as their enemies. where Paul said in Acts chapter 28 that he was being persecuted for the hope of Israel, for the hope of the 12 tribes. Then he said, for which hope's sake I am accused of the Jews. So the Jews are not the 12 tribes, and, and the 12 tribes are not Jews. And if Luke identified with those 12 tribes, then they certainly weren't black because Luke was a Greek and he was a physician. He was a doctor. He was an educated man. He wasn't a fool. In Luke chapter 2, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. When did the Romans tax niggers? Okay, that's another silly question because it didn't happen ever, right? 
In Luke chapter 11, light and darkness are again representations of good and evil, where Christ said, the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, meaning sincere, the whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle does give thee light. In Luke chapter 22, once again, evil is likened to the power of darkness. In Luke chapter 24, we see the purpose of Christ attested. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. In John chapter 3, light and darkness are good and evil. And in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman said to Christ, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So if the Hebrews were black, if the ancient Israelites were black, then the Judeans would have to be black. And if the Judeans were black, then the Samaritans would also have to be black. Can a society, now this is important. Think about this at, at, at the, an abstract level. Can a society of black people develop paradigms in their language that associate black or darkness with evil and light or whiteness with good. If Negroes had written the scriptures from the beginning, I can imagine that the symbols used to make those comparisons may have been very different. <laughs> because if you're black, you're not going to sit there and dream up or devise a paradigm describing the darkness of your body as evil. You're just not going to go there. You're going yeah, to find... they call us white devils, don't they? That the white is bad. So, so where's that in Scripture? Exactly. Exactly. All of this language, all of these metaphors and allegories must have been formulated by a white society. Because black people would not sit there and say that the darkness of your body is evil. Wow. And um, with with the Samaritan, uh, Samaritan, sorry, um, Justin Martyr, he was um, a Samaritan, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And, and he, was he was clearly clear, white. Clearly white. Well, that should be enough for today. And and I don't have the rest of your list, so I guess you'll send it to me by next week, so we can consider the next several points in your one hundred proofs. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think since we're now onto the Gospels, it, it might be a good uh, time to go for for the mistranslations of the Gospel. But um, you know, we could have a think. But I think that would be a good place to go uh, since we've just went through all the prophets and all that as well. Yeah, there are some mistranslations in the Gospel that are crucial, but there are also more mistranslations in the book of acts and in the letters of paul yeah paul, paul got butchered didn't he 
Yes, because they made Paul say things that he never intended that, that about all men and and other things that that are just nefarious. That are are take. There are times when Paul said all or everyone, but the context doesn't include everyone on the planet. That's for sure. And and there's other mistranslations in in Paul's letters that are just criminal. <laughs> In Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul said that the faith is not for all. That's what he said, and and the church writes, not everyone has faith, and and that's a complete opposite of what Paul said. <laughs> there are other places in his epistles that that are just as badly translated, that that were purposely mistranslated to agree with church doctrine. Yeah, exactly. That they always had an agenda. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks praise for having Yahweh. me, Bill, as always. And uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Good night.